0: Hi, this is Amanda Satilli, author of Fearless Growth, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel.
1: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Amanda Catelli. Amanda's managing partner of the strategy consulting firm Catelli & Associates. She's worked with leaders of large enterprises such as Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Home Depot, and Walmart to advise them on strategic direction. She gained international experience working for Global Food Exchange, consulted for McKinsey & Company, and developed products and optimized manufacturing operations for Kimberly-Clark. Having earned a chemical engineering degree from Vanderbilt and an MBA from Harvard, she enjoys teaching business students at the B School at Emory. Amanda is the author of two important books, The Agility Advantage, which we talked about in episode 247 of My Quest for the Best, and Fearless Growth, which is what we're here to talk about today. She's based in Atlanta, enjoys backpacking, biking, sailing, and skiing with her family. Welcome, Amanda. Good morning, Bill. Hey, it's great to have you on again.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
1: And we're going to talk about your book, Fearless Growth, The New Rules to Stay Competitive, Foster Innovation, and Dominate Your Markets. And I wanted to ask you why you picked the adjective fearless to put in the title.
0: Well, my first book was The Agility Advantage, and when people began to call me to ask for help in being more agile, when I began to work with them, I realized that there were a lot of reasons why they had trouble being agile, and the biggest one was fear. They were afraid of not making their numbers. They were afraid of maybe having to lay somebody off. They were afraid of speaking up in a meeting and being controversial, and I realized how much that fear was really holding them back from achieving all that they could. And there wasn't a need for it. you know. I think that one of the things I realized in researching and writing Fearless Growth is that if you can give up a degree of control, you can actually gain control. So Fearless Growth is really about how you can give up control to your employees, to your customers, to others in your organization, but as a result, actually have more eyes and ears looking out for you and more people helping you to be successful.
1: Amanda, tell me how that works in practice, where when I think that a manager hearing, when if you give up a degree of control, you gain a degree of control. How does that work in practice?
0: I'll give you a good example. I was speaking to a client just this week, and we're right in the middle of the COVID crisis right now. And when I had worked with this client previously, they had taken a long time to make decisions. But now we've got an emergency, Right. And so they had gotten really good in the last couple of weeks at just saying to people, you take this decision, I trust you to make this decision, think about the facts and decide, it's delegated to you. So being able to give up that control to another group actually helped them to gain control because they were able to make very fast decisions, get control of their business and put themselves in a very good place to survive and thrive amid this environment.
1: That's really interesting. I've often said that people really don't know how strong that their team is until they fully let them rely on them and fully let them take responsibility for something. And that's what you're advocating here is you're saying, give up some of the control that they're ready for. Your team is ready to show you how much they can do if you just give them sensible, reasonable things in order to take responsibility for and show us what you can do.
0: Absolutely. I mean, they're usually the ones who know more about what's really going on out there. They're closer to the customers, they're closer to the operations, and they typically can make a better decision than you can. So giving up that control to them is actually a way of creating safety for yourself. And it's more motivating for them because who wants to just be told what to do and be a cog in the machine, you know? I think that part of my quest for the best is to help people be able to find what they're really great at doing and leaders to be able to bring out the best in people.
1: Let's go back to the fear for a little bit because overcoming it is really a major issue, especially in an environment like we're in now, where over a month into the the COVID pandemic conditions and people are still working from home and not seeing each other in offices, that creates a lot of uncertainty. Fear and uncertainty are closely related, I guess because uncertainty can generate more fear. How do you advocate people to approach this kind of situation when they have growth goals?
0: Well, I think one of the biggest insights that I had writing Fearless Growth is that companies that can get comfortable with uncertainty and people that can get comfortable with uncertainty can actually create a huge competitive advantage for themselves. Because when something changes quickly and nobody knows what's going to happen next, if you can be the one that can be confident, can weigh the risks, can tackle the risks one by one, can manage that uncertainty, you can really move faster than anyone else and position yourself very effectively to be able to succeed. Comfort and being able to operate in an uncertain environment is a huge competitive advantage. And you can actually stay get ahead of the pack and stay ahead of the pack for the long term if you can get really good at that.
1: What's something practical that people can do in order to increase their comfort with uncertainty?
0: Well, you know what I do is simply to write down what might happen. And so I use a process, it's a scenario planning process that I developed, where I simply say, so what are the parameters of change? And if you think about the situation we're in right now, two of the main parameters are how fast are we going to be able to get this virus under control? And how effective are the economic measures that the government and large businesses are putting in place going to be? And so by kind of breaking down the uncertainty into pieces, those are just the two pieces, but then you can break those two pieces into, you know, sub pieces and just saying what could happen in each of these within each of these parameters. So for an example, you know, if you took the virus situation one of the things that will reduce our uncertainty is if we can get a really good testing program in place. So look at that and say to yourself, how likely is it that we'll get a good testing program in place? What are the barriers to that? What are the kind of signs that we could be moving along effectively on that track? What positive things have we seen so far, such as this, this community in El Paso that's testing, no, it Santa Fe, Santa Fe that's testing everyone. And if you are objective about what are the sources of uncertainty and what do we know and what don't we know, you can really develop a sense for what the possible scenarios are that can happen. And you can say, so what what do I need to do to prepare for those scenarios? What are some no brainers that I should do no matter what? What are some things that I'll be really glad that I did if scenario A or B happens? What are some things I'll be really glad that I had done if scenario C happens? And I think that if you are working in a management team, if you can talk that through with your, you know, with the rest of your your leadership team, it really can help you kind of mentally rehearse for what you will do when those scenarios begin to play out.
1: Well, I think that's really really neat because you've given people a tool now that they could use to think about the uncertainty, and it really comprises of three steps where you think through what are the alternatives. You anticipate how you can respond to each alternative to move your business goals or your personal objectives forward. And then you prepare so that if it goes to that direction, it goes into that side of the decision tree matrix, then you're prepared to move forward. So, one, two, three have given people a way to really take it from seeing it being something abstract and vague into something that could be much more concrete and strategic in order to plan and move forward for it.
0: Right and it really helps to talk that through with your team and even if your team is just your family let's say you have you know a couple of teenagers and a college kid and and your spouse sit down and say okay guys we don't know what's going to happen but here are some of the possibilities that could happen what do we wish we had done if those things happen you know so i think it can really help to talk it through as a group
1: yeah i'm thinking that it's very practical we had a conversation like that the other night and it was like, all right, I'm going out to see if they have this type of tomato sauce in the store. If they do, we're going to make lasagna. If we don't, we're going to have chicken salad.
0: <laughs>
1: and it was, it was that, just that same kind of thinking it through and saying, all right, it can happen. It'll be on the shelf or it won't. Either way, we're gonna have something good to look forward to. One of the chapters of your book is about really understanding your customer. And in order to have fearless growth, Understanding the needs of your customer is paramount. What is it that you want executives to have in mind to understand their customer in order to prepare for fearless growth?
0: Um, There's three things. The first thing is to really understand your customer's world. And one of the things that I think is most helpful in doing that is thinking about your customer's customers. So that's who they're worried about, right? They're trying to think ahead, what do my customers need and how am I going to adapt to their needs? And so if you can kind of take yourself a level or two down into how the needs of your customers' customers are changing, that can be really helpful. And it can even help your customers think that through because a lot of times they're too close to it to really see those kinds of changes and opportunities. The second thing is to just really be intimately familiar with how What their needs are, how those needs are changing, and how you can best support them. And if you can be very in tune with that, you can often adapt your company to be able to serve those changing needs and to support the customer, especially in this COVID world that the um, customers' needs are changing so fast. Those companies who are able to serve those needs are going to really come out of this ahead. And the last thing is to collaborate with customers. And one of the most important things there is to choose the right customers to collaborate with. So choose those forward-thinking, kind of demanding customers to be the ones that you're going to be working on with innovation and things like that.
1: Now, that was kind of a surprise. You said, be careful with who you collaborate with and choose carefully, not be careful, but choose carefully. And you said the right customers can often be the demanding customers. Many people would think the customers you want to collaborate with are the ones who are safe to deal with, they enjoy being with you, they don't ask more of you. What do you learn from working with customers and collaborating with customers who have new demands and aren't just content with the way things are?
0: Yeah, well, one of the biggest mistakes that companies make is tending to ignore the demanding customers or kind of push them away and spend too much time with the customers that are easy to serve. And you know where that ends you up is... Just doing the same thing over and over and then ending up in a commodity situation where your competitors trample past you. So who you want to be really listening to is those customers that are very demanding, that are kind of the weird ones that are saying, why aren't you guys doing this? You guys are totally missing the boat. Listen to those people. Those are the ones who are going to take you into the future. And if you can meet those demanding customers' needs, then the rest are going to probably have those same needs a year or two
1: from now. In your research or maybe with some of the consulting work that you've done, can you share an example of a company's leadership that really embraced this notion and set it as a priority to reach out and find out what the demanding customers were asking for and find out if it's something that could be incorporated into an existing product line or maybe into a a future offering? I think
0: a great example is Home Depot because they have a really neat practice of having their senior leadership all the way down to the VP level, I think, work in the stores on, you know, at least, I think it's at least one Thursday every quarter. And they spend a lot of time in the stores, thousands and thousands of hours. And they actually are working in the store. So the store, instead of staffing a certain number of employees that day, will staff fewer because they know that these, you know, SVPs and C level people and vice presidents are gonna be in the store working just as a normal associate would. And when you walk into the store, you don't really realize that you're being served by an executive. And they may not know as much about the plumbing area or the plants on the out there as as the employee who's normally there, but they're learning about you. They're watching. How our how customers interacting with our merchandise? What questions do they have? What's hard about being an employee here? What's easy about being an employee here? Where are the opportunities? And they see so many more opportunities. And they also see that some of the things they thought were such bright ideas actually may not work. And so that really gives them that kind of frontline, on-the-ground experience that enables them to make good decisions at the top.
1: So it might have been an EVP who noticed people coming in and saying, why are the rakes in this aisle? And then five aisles away, you've got the plastic bags where I've got to put the stuff I've raked up and then suddenly putting them together so it's easier to put them in the cart and, and move on together.
0: Great example. And, you know, maybe they'll increase their sale of bags, which actually helps the customer because the customer's always running out of bags and doesn't want to make a special trip to Home Depot. So it's good for everyone, right?
1: That's true. That's absolutely true. Amanda, one of the, the ideas I really love in Fearless Growth is talking about a feedback loop. I think a lot of people like me will enter feedback and offer suggestions and then think that it just goes into a recycling bin sometimes because, you know, I've made the suggestion three or four times, I've spoken with managers about how to change something, and it doesn't look like it's ever actually moving anywhere. What are some ideas to improve that, to elevate that idea so that it actually makes a difference and customers feel good about making suggestions because they see that it actually has an impact?
0: I think that is such a fascinating topic. I think that fast feedback is the most important thing to be able to stay up to date with your market. Now, sometimes things that customers ask for are not reasonable and are not you know, suggestions that you want to implement. And the best thing to do there is to get back to them, if possible, saying, we've considered this and unfortunately, due to our operational constraints, it's not possible at this time. We're hoping that it's possible in the future. Give them some kind of rational explanation so that they don't feel that they're talking into a black hole. But I think that watching what customers are saying, watching what they're saying on social media, watching what they're saying in reviews, and being able to digest that information and feed it back into your product development systems, your customer service systems, is hugely important for being able to stay in touch with the market. Another thing that I really advocate is putting customers to work, and you all know how a lot of times when you have a problem with a Microsoft product or a Google product or whatever, when you when you try to find the solution to that problem, it's usually another customer that's giving you a suggestion, right? Not a worker at the actual company. And I think that's great to make it easy for customers to contribute to forums on solving problems. When you do that, you learn a lot about your products that you didn't know. And it's kind of like free labor. People are happy to do it. So putting customers to work is a very valuable way of staying in close touch with customers. But this issue you brought up of customers feeling like they're not being listened to, I have a name for that and it's the placebo button effect. And I think that it's more, even more damaging when you do that within your company, when you ask for employees feedback and then it doesn't seem to really have any impact. And what I see happening is that you're almost training employees that what they say doesn't matter. And then you end up with a lot of employees that are sort of checked out and not really contributing. So getting rid of those placebo buttons, those actions that you've, you know, you're asking for input, but you're not really listening to the input is really important.
1: Dr. Marty Seligman of the University of Pennsylvania and father of positive psychology had a term for that. He called it learned helplessness, where companies actually tell their employees to put ideas into the suggestion box. And if month after month, people are putting in suggestions and nothing is being implemented, they've just taught them that your voice doesn't matter, your ideas don't matter. And in essence, you don't matter. So it's important for companies, like you say, to really act on it or set appropriate expectations as to what's going to happen. You know, if employees, the same way that unreasonable customers can say things, I'm sure employees can say, why not have, you know, not just casual Friday, free ice cream at lunch and then beer in the afternoon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think I love Marty Marty Seligman and I I love that concept of learned helplessness because I think it's so damaging and I think we really need to recognize it when it occurs and get rid of it. You know how terrible of an impression you can make on a customer when a customer makes a reasonable suggestion and the employee goes, I know we've told them and told them they won't do anything about it. And you're just like, whoa, we're all helpless together. The employee and the customer are just helpless against some bureaucracy somewhere that is making this whole thing make no sense. So very good point.
1: I'll bring up another specific example where recently the hosting company I work with changed the interface of their backend user area. And now they made it look really nice, but they took away functionality that allowed us to see all of our past tickets that we've submitted help for. And it's like, I need to be able to search this. And I said, I just have two requests, put a search box in and then put a filter in. Search box will allow me to look up tickets and reference them so that it's easy to find the best solution. And then a filter will allow me to look at things within ranges, date ranges, and also separate out chats from help tickets. I said, if you could possibly do that, that would make such a difference. They didn't understand. The first two people who responded said, Oh, I'm glad you like the new interface. It's like, no, no, no. I'm making a complaint. (laughs) Please escalate. I had to raise this.
0: (laughs) That was that was artificial intelligence gone awry, wasn't it? No, it wasn't a real person responding, which is so aggravating when you're chatting with a company and their responses just make no sense to what you're saying.
1: Well, and that kind of is a nice segue into trust that you ought to let people know whether on a phone call or on an electronic chat, whether you're dealing with a person or some sort of AI. And there's so many issues involved in this. How does trust from your perspective really become a governing factor with how fast a company can move when they're pursuing fearless growth?
0: Well, just think about it. If you have an environment which is not trusting, and though many companies won't say it, there often is a lack of trust. You can't move nearly as fast because you're not sure of what other people are going to be doing whether they're going to be you know doing what they're committing to or not and you're also not sure where you stand with respect to how people are thinking about what your suggestions are. So when there's lack of trust, you know, you're having to slow down to wait for approvals. You're having to slow down to check and make sure everybody did that, what they said they were going to do. You're having to slow down for a thousand reasons and trust can enable you to move so, so much faster because everyone knows their role. We're all committed to the same goal and we are being very truthful with each other about what we can and cannot do.
1: So here's an example that I encountered a short while ago at an executive meeting. I was asked to sit in and, and look at what the dynamics were and offer some feedback. And one person in the group asked, so here's my plan for rolling out this new product and approaching a new market, and asked for feedback from the group. Several people had questions, a couple people made other suggestions, and then finished. The person I was speaking with, his name is Robert, said to me after, I said, he said, so what did you notice? And I fed that back to him. And he says, did you notice anything from Linda? And I said, she was giving nonverbal signals, but didn't voice anything. He goes, just wait. We spoke the next day. He says, sure enough, Linda came to me and offered her feedback separately. That type of situation, while Linda may think that she's being helpful, actually isn't. What's your perspective on that? When someone asks for feedback at a senior level meeting And some members of the group feel confident and and able to contribute. And someone routinely, habitually is always offering feedback on the side or afterward, maybe for completely innocent reasons. But what does that do to trust in the group from your perspective, Amanda?
0: I think it's very damaging. I mean, this gets to the issue of psychological safety, which Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School coined that phrase. And what it has to do with is making sure that everyone feels safe to be able to voice their opinion, even if their opinion is not going to be popular in the group. And that takes a lot. It takes way more than just saying, I want to hear from everybody. It takes things like deliberately asking people to do a pre-mortem where we say, what if this project is a terrible failure? What do you think is the most likely reason that would have happened? And then start with the most junior person in the room and say, what do you think? Then go to the second most junior person in the room and say, what do you think? You've got to like actively seek out using mechanisms like that to make sure that everybody's voice is heard. Now, with this example of Linda, my bet is that one of the most likely reasons that she does that is she's afraid she's going to hurt somebody's feelings in the room. It was Bill's idea, and I didn't want to you know, say anything negative about it, but it's actually going to be disaster and fail. <laughs> so she says that offline. Well, the, it's the leader's responsibility to make everyone comfortable with that through these tools like a pre-mortem. like let's just say that this thing does fail. what would be the most likely reason? That gives Linda a little bit of cover to be able to say, well, I'm a little bit concerned about the way that Bill's team is implementing their part because there is a chance that this and such could go wrong. She can say it in a nice way, but the leader can make an effort to get those to get her in the habit of saying it in the group so that other people can consider and respond. Because if it's not fair to the person, it's not fair to the person who she's afraid of harming, right? If they don't know what their weak points are.
1: Exactly. And I really like the idea of starting with the person who's most junior in the room and offering them the chance to voice their ideas and going around as part of the expectation that everyone's going to contribute. Amanda, what are some other behaviors that executives can kind of review and see if they are present? in their interactions with other leaders of the company and call each other out on it and say, oh, wait a second, we need to do something different because this type of behavior isn't helpful to building trust. And that's something we're committed to.
0: Well, I think that three of the essential components of trust are one, to be consistent, which just means people know what to expect of you and you really do what is expected. The second is to kind of establish a track record of being able to be successful that people can see. And the third is to have a shared goal that everyone is truly committed to. And so if you can be explicit about those, that can be very helpful. And number one, the consistency issue often is because people are afraid to say that they can't do something. And so if you can get people to be willing to say, here's what I can do, here's what I can't do so that everybody knows what we can expect from the person, that can be very helpful. And there's often very legitimate reasons why people can't do things. And so you've got to get rid of that kind of, yes, sure, I'm on it, but I'm not really on it (laughs) mentality to build trust. The other thing that you can do is take explicit measures to build trust, such as just having People check in at the beginning of every meeting. How's it going? What's going on? You know, is there anything that's troubling you or sidetracking you right now that we can help you with or which could be a personal or a business thing? Getting people to really know each other is really helpful.
1: Those are some great ideas. And I think that we're in an age where even aside from what's going on with the, the COVID coronavirus precautions, where we're social distancing and staying home most of the time, we're in an age where we have these companies like Airbnb and Lyft that are creating trust because they have done it in their culture. They've baked it into the DNAs, as the phrase goes, so that they can create trust through doing things that are very explicit in order to allow people to know that they're able to stay in someone's spare bedroom or use their house and the person who's renting or you know letting it out on Airbnb Knows that they're not going to trash it. (laughs) Taking a Mm -hmm, ride. Was that something that growing up we all knew, don't get in a car with strangers? And now we have apps to tell us how to get in cars with strangers. (laughs) It's just a very, very different world. But there are things that they've done to create that trust. What are some of the specific things that you've observed or analyzed that people could listen to these ideas and say, well, maybe we could add that to the way that we do business with our customers to build more trust?
0: Well, if you think about it, when these rideshare companies came into being, um, or Airbnb, they thought explicitly about what are people going to be worried about, and how can we address each of those worries. And so, you know, they addressed each of those worries explicitly and put in place programs to take care of it. So they established background checks for drivers. They put a rating system in so that drivers would be rated on on their level of good driving and service and cleanliness of the car and things like that and that passengers would also be rated <laughs> you know that's pretty good to have a quid pro quo like that they've more recently put in place systems where you can easily alert somebody while you're riding in the car that you don't feel comfortable it, so that you people will know where you are what car you're in and what the situation is that you feel uncomfortable with so they've taken steps to try to explicitly address those trust issues with their technology and with their policies. And I think that's been really effective. It's enabled our sharing economy to work, really.
1: Well, Amanda, you've been so generous in sharing great ideas from uh, fearless growth. And I just want to thank you so much for breaking it down and helping us understand that fear is a real situation. It's a real condition that needs to be addressed, and if it is addressed, you could act more boldly and confidently. We talked about how when you're comfortable with uncertainty, you can gain a competitive advantage and do things to specifically increase your level of comfort with it, such as thinking through the alternatives, anticipating how you can respond, and then preparing to take that action so you could advance your business or personal agenda. It's important to know the customer's world. In order to have fearless growth, it really is about focusing on the customer and understanding not just your customer, but thinking about your customer's customers and how they could be successful in meeting those customers' needs as well. Support them in changing environments like we're all going through. And third, collaborating with them and looking at not just the ones who are easy to get along with, but the ones that are even more demanding, you could learn even more from. We talked about the importance of fast feedback and how you learn so much and being, you know, dedicating resources to regularly look on social media and reviews to see what customers are saying. And then also thinking about ways that you might incorporate some of your customers to help serve your purposes and solving other people's problems, like you talked about with the forums and then trust and how when you can trust other people in your organization, it allows you to move quickly because, you know, who you can rely on, and they know that they could rely on you. We talked about psychological safety and how important that is, and how you could actually build trust into your interactions or touch points at every step. So, Amanda Satelli, thank you again so much for sharing these ideas with us on My Quest for the Best from your book, Fearless Growth: The New Rules to Stay Competitive, Foster Innovation, and Dominate Your Markets.
0: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bill.
1: Oh, and Amanda, before we say goodbye for now, tell us where we can find out more about you and your work online. Look
0: for my articles on LinkedIn, and also you can find lots of great info at com.
1: Well, Amanda, we're going to make it so easy for people to find you. We're going to put your contact info and link to all of your social media and reports and information on your website, on your expert notes page, and also all of the will link to some of the resources that we discussed during the interview. So again, thank you so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com.